remain standing for the reading of God's word. From the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 27 through 31. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be distressed or lacking in courage. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, because the Father is greater than I am. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me. But I am doing just what the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Get up, let us go from here. May we be blessed by the reading and embracing of God's word. You may be seated. Of the four Gospels, and maybe this is not necessarily a good thing to say, but John would have to rank among my favourites. By standards of what a Gospel is, John is an odd duck. He's the one barking mallard in the whole lake. Doesn't do things quite like everyone else does with Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John which we refer to as the Synoptic Gospels. But John stands alone, kind of by himself, using the same genre of storytelling, but with such rich imagery that John becomes a systematic theologian's nightmare because of the things that he says, kind of tongue twisters, mind twisters, things like... They would pour off the the lips of Jesus. I am in you and the Father is in me. And when I am in you, then the Father will also be in you. And the Spirit will come and we will make our dwelling places with you. And then you will be one also. This is John's dynamic way of doing things. He's not trying so much to give us a linear picture of uh, what the Christian faith is. In other words, to line us up next to a blackboard and give us several propositions. What he does is gives us a matrix, a messianic matrix of what Jesus is and why Jesus is the center of all things that God has been planning and that God is now doing and that God will do. He is the hub, if you will, the nexus, the core, the the life-giving power who is the person who is the theology that we embrace His name is Jesus Christ. John introduces him to us first under the rubric of the Logos, a term which would have been familiar to Aramaic speakers, Greek speakers, or I should say a concept, uh, and also those who spoke Hebrew. John takes 
all of these ideas, the, from the Hebrew davar, which means word, from the Aramaic memrah, which during the intertestamental period uh, grew this marvelous picture of the word of God doing things and being more active, almost personified, if you will. The Greek concept logos, which saw the logos as being the divine intent behind all things. John kind of uses all of these three and then puts his own content into it to say these are convenient rubrics. They're convenient titles, but I need to do something radical to this. I need to give all of these a radical Christological upgrade. They're going to be so it's going to be so dynamic and so different that it will drive the best theologians crazy. And that's what happens in John's Gospel. The Pharisees are always trying to figure him out. Nicodemus, remember the, that wonderful discourse there in chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Good teacher, we know that you've come from God because how else can someone do the things that you're doing? And basically, Jesus responds by saying, actually, you know very little to almost nothing. And that's a shame, because you are the seminary professor for all of Israel, and you won't get what I'm about to tell you. That unless a man is born anothen, tricky little Greek word, unless a man is born anothen, he cannot even see the kingdom. Now, this word anothen is very interesting, because it can either mean, again, or from above. Nicodemus is thinking born again because he's trying to look into the very complex issues of how a full-grown man would go back into his mother's womb to be born again. Theologically, he's lost in space. Jesus is talking about being born of the Spirit. All throughout John, people have conversations with Jesus where they're using the same words as Jesus, but he means something radically different. Even his own disciples are not excluded from this. Mark has a messianic secret because Jesus performs miracles and then he tells the people who are the beneficiaries of his miracles, shh, don't tell anyone. Because he wants them to wait and believe on this resurrection. John, as we said earlier, has a messianic matrix. He puts things together that no one would have even imagined fitted. He's doing this for his disciples here in chapter 14. And in doing so, he gives his motivation for why he carries out his messianic ministry. We've titled the sermon, An Undying Affection, because this is what the Christ indeed represents for us. Not only represents, but what he is and what he wants to be sincerely in us. If you can bear this for just a second, God saves us through his son's affection. We're being kept on a daily basis, moment by moment, nanosecond by nanosecond, by Christ's faithful love to his father, which we've become partakers of. That's why we can pray prayers and ask for forgiveness and be assured that God will forgive because God's dealing with his son. And we happen to be, as believers, now trapped between the love of the father and the love of the son eternally. 
We're unable to escape this divine Trinitarian conversation that's going on as we're kept in the spirit, but between the affection of the Father and the Son. Paul illustrates this great truth of love in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about marriage. Remember, he gives us all that great marital advice and then at the end he says, oh, but I'm not talking about humans, I'm talking about Christ and the church. And he kind of leaves going, well, what was all this husband and wife thing? He says, don't you get it? From the very beginning, God showed you in Adam and Eve a picture of what he would do to save you. Human marriage is, is not the core. The relationship between Jesus and the church, that's the real target. Human marriage was put in place so that you would have a clue. So when you see a husband loving a wife and a, love, a wife loving a husband, he says, multiply that by like 42 billion carried to the 60,000th power and you'll be maybe a third of the way there. Such is the love for the son, for the church, and the church is love for her husband, Christ Jesus. It will be an incredible affection. And, and what he's trying to say is, you husbands, I want you to have a love like this. And immediately you would think, well, who can do that? And Ephesians provides us a wonderful answer. Now to the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. He's saying, I wasn't betting on you in the first place. I was betting on my son to work in you. A mighty theology. And in that we see the mystery of how Christ saves the church. I love to ask this to my, of my students in seminary. Because when I say, well, according to this, how did Jesus save the church? And someone will inevitably raise their hand and say, by dying for it. And I say, nope. And they're thinking, uh-oh, what happened here? Did we go to the wrong seminary? This isn't like, like um, Beth Shalom seminary, is it? You know, where Jesus is not written in their part of their Bible. That They just take the first part of the movie. They don't take the sequel. Okay? And, and they, go, they give me all of these answers. And then they go, well, then what, prof? How did Christ save the church if it wasn't for dying for her? I said, you gave me the outcome. You didn't give me the real gist of how he saved the church. And they'll say, well, what is it? And I say, by doing whatever the Father asked him to do. It's his love for his Father that saves us. We're going to see that. Maybe I need to say that a few times here. When it gets to the end of this passage. He says the ruler of this world is coming. And he has nothing on me. Satan is on his way. And, and you can imagine right then. The, the cohort is probably packing up and getting their gear to come and arrest Jesus. And we know that friendly God-seeking, God-fearing fellow who's leading the whole group there. Judas. Who by this time, no doubt, Satan had entered into his heart. So Jesus is seeing this as a metaphysical, paranormal thing. It's Satan that's leading the way here. Through the person of Judas. But he's coming to carry me away. To have me arrested, to have me put on trial. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, but I want you to know he has no authority over me. Because that's not what it's going to look like when I get arrested. 
Even as he talked, the first words here in um, verse uh, 27 in the Greek is, Irene, peace. I'm leaving you peace. And this is a comment right before he's about to be arrested and carried away. The ruler of this world is coming and he has no authority over me. And Jesus certainly through his ministry had already demonstrated this. He has authority over the winds and over the seas. He tells demons what to do. He refuses to let demons be evangelists for him. We know you, you're the Holy One of God. And Jesus would command them saying, shut up. I don't need your help. The ruler of this world is coming. And he's about to take me away and do horrible things to me. Painful things, excruciating things, agonizing things. But you have to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. These things which you are about to see, which you are about to witness, that will scare you so that just as the scripture says, you will run to your own homes and you will hide. The shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will scatter. Peter will deny Jesus. There are a couple of ways in Greek to answer questions where you expect a negative answer and another where you expect a positive answer. Peter denies Jesus using both. He wanted to be very thorough. You're going to be scared out of your wits, but I need you to know why I'm doing what I'm doing. These things I do just as the Father commanded me. I do that the world might know that I love the Father. Now if you want to talk about purpose driven life, that's it. It's not about 40 days. It's about eternity. That the lasting testimony of why I do the things that I do is that you get it. That you understand that I love the Father And for you, that is a sweet and wonderful thing. Because what he asked me to do is for your benefit. And though I love him, though I love you rather, I love him more. And I'm prepared to do anything if he wants me to set my affection on you. How about that for a second, Adam? One that has a different tree, not a judgment tree. Not a tree to test and see if you will allow God to remain in charge in your life. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where the um, tov and ra in Hebrew are put together, it, it always signifies this idea of judgment. In the Garden of Eden, the quest was, and the test would be, will through this tree and this tempter, Adam... And Eve say to God, we have this opportunity for some great real estate and and, and a wonderful career path of being enlightened. But you know what? We are going to stick with you because we think you know what's best for us since you're our creator and you're the one who sustains our life anyway. 
Now later on, Moses will put it this way. Man shall not live by what? Bread alone, nor by fruit trees. In Texas, not by steak. But every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. It was that true, that covenantal reality that was to be applied in the Garden of Eden. Well, Jesus didn't have a tree like that. His tree, you get nailed on. And the law says that cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So for the Father's sake, he has to endure ignominy and shame. He's being tried and executed as a Torah breaker. But that you might know that I love the Father. I do all that is commanded of me. That's where he's going. And at the end of this, he'll say, get up, it's time to go. Verse, or chapters 15, 16, and 17 are rather interesting. Because it seems like in the Gospel of John, that if you took those chapters out, you'd have a nice sequencing of the action. Going from the end of 14 to the beginning of 18. Some commentators suspect that there is a seam here. That John the Evangelist has inserted some other material in, in, in commentaries uh, of, of all sorts of trying to figure out. Well, what Jesus did was he said, okay, get up and let's go. And then he did the rest of it as they were walking. Now, the truth of it is we don't know, but we do know it's in the Bible. Okay? And that's where it's supposed to be for us. But if we even dare to hold the seam, this 14, 15, and 16, uh, 14, excuse me, 15, 16, and 17 gives us some wonderful theology that culminates with the high priestly prayer. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. There, John goes again, placing things together. He wants us to have a well-rounded view of all of the complexities that our faith entails. How wound up. Have you ever seen a ball of yarn? Have you ever had the wonderful pleasure of going to your drawer and needing one paper clip? And there are 60 paper clips in your drawer in a little box. But they are never laid out all separately and wrapped in individual, you know, like, like, like cheese. They're, they're not in little plastic pieces. And then you take the paper clip out and then you, you, know, you take it out and then you stick it onto the paper and then you go on. That's been everyone's experience, right? I know it is mine every time I go to my dust drawer. No, the truth of it is, is that I go and I pick up one paper clip and I get 6,512 other paper clips. And then I get the wonderful task because it's never just one tied to the other. It's like one tied to 62. And, and by the time I get one free, I realize the one that I've been working on was actually not the one I was working on. It was another one that's still tied to another 62. And then there's weeping, there's gnashing of teeth, there's, there's getting under the table in a fetal position and crying for coffee with, you know, forget the espresso, just bring me the grounds. 
And then someone will walk into my office with a stapler and go, ploop, there you go. And it takes out all of the fun for it. And I said, don't you understand? God gave me these paper clips for my sanctification and you've ruined it. <laughs> but the picture of those paper clips is a picture of our salvation. God has tied you up and has tied me up in so many ways to Him that not even the shrewdest demon could untie it. That your salvation cannot be undone because of the radical way that He has tied you and affixed you to the life of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's a marvelous thing that even we cannot untie and unknot and unclip all of the clips that he's done because he's even added a little fire to it to melt it all together. And each day of your life is part of the melting process where this intertwined love that you have grows deeper and deeper and deeper through testing, through trial. And we force ourselves to have to come back and say through the Christ who lives in us, that the world might know that I love the Father, I will endure these things. I have a friend right now, Matt Chandler, who's the pastor of the Village Church. On Thanksgiving, he woke up to a wonderful seizure. And taking him to the doctor, they eventually found that he had a, a tumor, one by two inch, right in the front of his head. Turns out the tumor is malignant. Matt Chandler has had a wonderful ministry to so many, drawing them into Christ. And now he is trying to get them to see that this is not a moment to lose faith, but to rather look at it in terms of saying, I am pleased that the Lord would allow me to suffer this way, so that I can tell you. For the love of the Father, I gladly endure this. To tell his congregation, don't lose faith. John Piper came down last Sunday to speak with them. To encourage the church. And if you remember, Brother Piper a few years ago had cancer himself. And rather than lamenting and complaining about it, he writes a book called, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Now he can do that because... Jesus is saying to us here, I won't waste my moment hanging on a tree. It will be a glorious moment. Whereby the very Torah, the Old Testament, it should be a cursed and an awful and a wretched thing. John refers to it as Jesus' moment of glory. And when he comes to... Chapter 17, he says, now glorify your son with the glory that I was enjoying with you, like I had pra katabolis kosmu before the world was. And whatever horror you need me to take, you need to take me through to demonstrate my love for you. I'm on it. That was the son, that was the gift that was given to us. That's the real Christmas. Away from all of the trees and all of the, the, the unattached merriment that goes around. 
that God was giving to us a radical love through Jesus Christ. In this farewell discourse here, Jesus starts off in verse 27 with Ereinein Ephiemi Humen, which means, I am giving peace to you. This idea of peace or shalom was typically a, a farewell greeting. We'll see Jesus say this again after his resurrection when he comes to his disciples. So it's kind of making a sandwich here. And all of the hardship of the cross and the confusion sits in between the two statements about peace. Now this is shalom peace. This is not quiet peace. It's shalom peace. Sometimes you have to make a lot of noise to get shalom peace. Shalom is this concept of well-being and wholeness that comes from everyone being under the reign of God. From being under the care of Yahweh. See, that's how we have peace in our relationships, in our friendships, in our homes, in our families, is that we have single governance. For us husbands, we're not the head of our home. Jesus is. We're very privileged custodians, you might say. We're to guard the things of God there. Which includes for us humility and all of those other good things that Christ has given to us as well. That's dynamically and radically different. Jesus is Lord. That's the confession. I've never read anywhere, Eliot is Lord. God forbid. What would the world be? Well, maybe the income tax situation would be a little bit better, but that's another story. But he says, peace I give you. And he says, not like the world gives you. Which is a false peace. This will be a peace that is secured, not like the Romans did in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Rome's peace was, if I come with a big enough sword and spear and stand in front of you, I'll convince you not to rob him. Because if I kill you, then there will be peace. Because you won't be around to make any problems. The fall of Jerusalem during the, um, the Jewish wars with Rome, when Rome had completely besieged the city of Jerusalem. Some of the Jewish inhabitants were swallowing their coins and then sliding down the backside of the mountain and trying to run out into the desert to get away from the Romans. Well, the um, Arabs were catching them and were uh, giving them operations without the benefit of anesthesia, if you understand what I'm saying, to remove the coins. When the Romans found out, the Romans found all of the people who were doing these things, committing these atrocities, and kind of uh, dissected them, but they weren't really looking for anything, if you get my drift. Because they said, only Rome will administer judgment. Now we have peace, don't we? It's not that kind of peace. It's not that kind of peace that we strain over to try to get everything in the world to go our way. That we work hard at doing everything. It's a source of a lot of the stress that's in our lives. It's not so much outside of us, it's inside of us. Because things are not right, Lord, unless they are working the way that I want them. Bereshit bara Eliot. In the beginning, Eliot created the heavens and the earth. Still trying to get over that theology that it's just not true. 
truth be told, maybe you could put your name there sometimes. Or you are a part of someone else's struggle to get peace in their lives by making you to conform to what they want. And what they want may not necessarily be a godly thing anyway. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't secure peace by an assault rifle. Or or, or with a bomb. or, Or with terrorism from heaven. The terror that we see, God pours out on his son, not on his people. And he gives even his enemies an opportunity to reconcile. How is that for terrorism? That you send your one-of-a-kind, unique son, as John calls him, into the world to be crucified for someone else's crimes. And you're satisfied when it's all done. What type of madness is this? It's the kind that Paul says is very confusing. We preach an exalted, powerful God, Jesus Christ, crucified on a cross. He says to a Jew, a stumbling block. To the Greek, a head scratcher. Because it just doesn't make sense. It's foolishness. But God was pleased to save those who believe this cockamamie, upside down message of a, an anointed representative from God, slain, criminally executed on the cross to save those who would believe it. And he says, isn't that crazy? He says, but the craziness of God is wiser than men. These are the apostles' own words. It doesn't seem to make sense, but in God's economy, it does. It's this type of peace that he's leaving us. A peace that he secures and gives to us. Not one that sends us chasing around trying to find the right therapist to fix things that are wrong that are really wrong with the way we worship God. Trying to have God second and still trying to get life to work out right. That's like taking the car, the, the, the tires from the car and setting them on the roof of the car and wondering why the car will not roll. The right things are in the wrong place. Jesus is preparing this for them. I give you peace, not as the world gives. And he says, because of this... Let not your hearts be troubled, and don't be afraid. Now, remember, they're all sitting around having dinner right now. With a mouth full of food, you're thinking, why is he talking to us about being afraid? This has been a very interesting meal, remember. For even in our Monday, Thursday celebrations. Remember, Jesus is sitting there. And everyone has a mouthful of food and they're making merriment. And and then right in the middle of this, he announces that this is going to be a last supper. And you can see that. These are apostles, they're fishermen. I probably didn't have the best table etiquette. Plus they would eat lying down next to a table. Last meal? What do you mean? What are you talking about? Last meal. And while they're still chewing and mumbling and grumbling, Jesus takes his garment off and wraps a towel around him and he goes around and begins to wash the disciples feet well that's taboo you don't do that That, that's horrible that's a servant's work and it's nasty servant's work because back then you, you know where the garbage disposal was it was called the front straight in your house that's where you put it 
And he's washing each of the disciples' feet. And you can imagine something is going on like this. They're looking at each other strangely. Let's say if you're the first one and he kneels and he begins to wash your feet. You have this kind of thing going. And you look at the person next to you going, what is he doing? And he goes, I don't know. (laughs) And he goes all the way through the trouble. Now Judas is already gone probably by this time. Or he's getting ready to split. But no one else says something except, except Peter. Oh no, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. He's going, he's the televangelist of the group. (laughs) You'll never wash my feet. I I, I just couldn't bear it. And then he says, if you don't allow me to wash your feet, Peter, you will not have a heritage with me. Well then, wash all of my Lord. Get behind my ears. And you know, that stands with problem. And he, he wants all of a sudden to be clean. He says, no, 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 that's not necessary. But this was an appalling event. Because God's emissaries didn't do things like this. But you know as he was washing those feet. This is, this is a living parable. What he was actually doing for them. As he's washing the feet. If you're astonished and amazed. And just really put out by this. Tonight's Thursday. Wait till tomorrow afternoon. You're really going to be at a loss for words. But you'll see that this fits as a lesser expression of love compared to what I'm going to do tomorrow. You will be shot out of your minds. So much so that it will be a few days before you begin to understand how much I've loved you. You will spend the rest of your lives trying to comprehend my love. Because I guarantee you, you'll never get over it. Once you fully understand, because right now you do not totally get it. You've heard me say, he says in verse 28, that I'm going away and I'm coming back. And he says, if you love me, you would be glad. This is an interesting phrase here. This, if you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father. In the Greek, it's called a second-class condition. In Greek, there are a couple of different ways to do this if-then clauses. You can have a first-class condition which says if, and let's assume this to be true. Second-class condition says if, and let's assume this to be false. And he's using that here. If you love me, and you don't even realize that you don't yet. You think you do. And, and what you have back there might be a great starter kit, but it's nothing like what it's going to be after I come back to you. Then you'll love me. He says, I know you're not there now. And this is a wonderful, marvelous example of helping us to do away with this theology of, I need to get cleaned up first, then I'll come to Jesus. No, he cleans you up so that you can come to the Father. The other is called moral improvement. The, the world does that all the time. It's possible for human beings to live better and be nicer. But that's not salvation. That's not redemption. That's not getting things right with God. That's just getting along with people until it's time to go to hell. It's not the same thing. It's not this reality of the paper clips all tied to the Father that Jesus is doing for us. 
That's not it. Some species of Christianity are willing to settle for that. But for us, no, because it's not the gospel. Because it doesn't have this messy moment on Friday that leads to the glorious moment on Sunday. It's not the gospel. It's just being nice to people while you wait to be executed yourself. That's not peace. That's temporary quiet. If you love me, and you will. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you might put things together that you might believe. And remember, this little piece comes right before, right after, I'm sorry, Jesus' discourse about the Holy Spirit. He says, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to fix you up. I'm going to put everything in place. Because you'll understand that I'm going to the Father. And, and, and one of the disciples says, well, show us the Father. And he goes, have I not been with you this long that you don't get it? That the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And we both desire to be in you. See everything being clipped together there. And he's even going to send you a spirit. The, the Holy Spirit, the parakletos in the Greek, paraclete, who is, get this, not comforter, not the best translation there. Comforter is something that you'll go home on a cold day and wrap around your body. This word refers to an advocate. That's different. The paraclete is not a comforter. He is an advocate. He is proper legal representation before God. He's one that affirms, that teaches and guides and reminds us that we're in Christ Jesus. And maybe that's needful in a lot of our lives. We remember that we're reformed. We remember where we go to church. But we don't always remember that we're in Christ. So sure we do all the time. Really? Does that always govern everything that you say? Everything that you think? All your motives? Your plans? Is that really true? Or are you resting on God's grace while he uh, taps you and gets your attention again? While he firmly keeps you in Christ? Like the most of us. Like the all of us. So he's going to send a spirit that will affirm what Jesus does. And Jesus does only what he sees the Father doing. And so much so that he says, because the Father is greater than I. Oh, here's another place. Systematic theology has a hard time with this statement. Because of its complexity. John 1 already tells us that Jesus is everything that God is. And everything that God was, the word was also. But it also tells us that he is distinct. They're the same, yet they're different in what they do and what they carry out. John helps us to see that the Godhead is a divine community. And guess what? We're going to learn love and what love is from God himself in living color. I will not speak with you much longer, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no power over me. But I am doing just what the Father commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now that's our confession too. Isn't that a great thesis for this new year? That all that I will labor to do so that those around me being that they believers or unbelievers might know that I love the Father 
And I love him through the power of his indwelling son. To do great and marvelous things for God. Maybe it's, it's not going to Rwanda and evangelizing the whole nation. Maybe it's just seizing control through God's work in your heart over some struggle. Or being faithful in some areas. See, these can be great New Year's resolutions because they are tied to the ball of paper clips. We're just adding another one. A new area of facet of life that will now be centered on the love and worship of God through the power of the indwelling Son. No one loves God like God loves God. That's the truth of it. And He's sharing us, He's sharing with us that precious privilege. What a great call this year to love God with all of our hearts all of our souls and all of our mind through Christ Jesus. That's the first thing on our agenda. The other resolution should be easy if we start there. The Christ-centered love for Christ-centered life. Hallelujah, O saints of God. Heavenly Father, we pray and we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. To hear your words, to be comforted by them, to be encouraged by them. Help us now, Lord, that our hearts will not sit dormant. Help us to ponder the uh, great vicissitudes and benefits of the love given to us and shown to us by Jesus Christ, both for you and for us. Help us now, since that we are his people, being conformed and made to be in his image, that he is indeed the firstborn of many brothers and sisters, Help us, Lord, that we bear off the witness of his presence in us, not only in what we confess, but what we submit to, and what we allow to change us and to make us more like him. Steady our attention on you and on your grace, on our covenant responsibilities and calling to exalt you as the God that eclipses the whole idea of what being God is. We thank you, O invisible God, who has made yourself known through the works of your incarnate Son and now wishes to work wonderful things in the world through his people. We give you praise and thanks and ask you for your strength, for your glory and our benefit, joy and advancement in the faith. Faith we do pray. Amen.